Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Nearly two years have passed since the January 6th Capitol breach. Now Capitol Police say they have taken some big strides to ensure there is no repeat. We'll take a look. No pictures without a negative COVID test. Senators and their families have to prove they're not sick before attending a photo op when the new Senate takes over today. The NFL's DeMar Hamlin in the hospital in critical condition. We bring you what exactly happened on the field and how fans are responding. Three regions in the world will continue to see political and military tensions in the new year. We take a look at each of them and their latest developments. What's the real number of China's COVID-19 infections? Some experts give their own estimates with the country's funeral homes and hospitals overloaded. The 118th Congress is being sworn in today, and before members take their oaths of office, the House is scheduled to elect a new speaker, and the outcome of that critical vote is uncertain, as GOP leader Kevin McCarthy appears to be struggling to drum up support to secure the win. A new Congress is getting underway. For the newly Republican-led House, a key vote Tuesday about who will be the next speaker. Let me be clear. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy still does not have enough votes to secure the win. Because of the razor-thin GOP majority, McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes. But there are already five hardline conservatives who say they're a no. And another nine who are asking for a wide range of concessions, with critics like Republican Bob Good saying McCarthy has done nothing to earn his vote. There's nothing that indicates to me that he's going to change his pattern since he's been in leadership where he's part of the swamp cartel. So if it's not McCarthy, then who? Some speculation that Tuesday afternoon's vote could feature multiple ballots for a House speaker, something not seen in 100 years. But on the night before the election, McCarthy sounding confident about his odds. Do you have the votes for speaker locked in tomorrow? I think we're going to have a good day tomorrow. NTD is also live streaming the House speaker election now on our website, ntd.com slash live. U.S. Capitol Police have made over 100 significant improvements to security following the January 6th Capitol breach. However, they say there is still much to be done nearly two years after the incident. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger says the Capitol breach was one of the darkest days in the nation's history. He called it an event that forced security officials to question if such an incident could happen again. Manger says that clear improvements have been made through the hard work and dedication of more than 2,000 Capitol Police employees. Some of the improvements include new leaders from premier law enforcement agencies with an expertise in national security special events, intelligence operations and physical security have been brought in. Planning for demonstrations and significant events now requires detailed incident action plans. New congressional legislation ensures that the Capitol Police Chief can unilaterally declare a state of emergency and call upon the National Guard. Significant equipment upgrades have been made to improve the department's readiness and protective capabilities. Specialized training has been expanded. Civil disturbance unit capabilities have been increased. And a new intelligence director, Ravi Satkalmi, has been hired. Last year, the now-retired Capitol Police's Inspector General Michael Bolton found numerous deficiencies in the agency's preparedness in response to January 6th, including failing to share intelligence. According to the U.S. Government Accountability Office, 114 Capitol Police officers were injured on the 6th. Four people died from medical emergencies during the incident, and Ashley Babbitt, an Air Force veteran, was also shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer. Manger says an event like January 6th could be attempted again due to the polarized state of the nation. However, he says, quote, should the unthinkable happen, we will be ready. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A new Senate takes over today, and with it comes a formal celebration. Vice President Kamala Harris has reportedly required senators and their families to submit a negative COVID test if they want to participate in a photo op. Here's the story. On Tuesday, the 118th Congress convenes for the first time and members are being sworn in. Vice President Kamala Harris also serves as the president of the Senate. She's requiring senators, their spouses, and guests older than two to provide a negative COVID-19 test before participating in a photo op. 
Harris's director of legislative affairs sent out the requirements last week, reading in part, As you are aware, White House COVID-19 protocols require that anyone over two years of age who will interact with the vice president take a medically administered antigen test within 24 hours prior to interaction and receive a negative result. This policy applies regardless of vaccination status. At noon on Tuesday, Harris will administer the oath of office to the senators who won their respective races in last November's midterms. Family members and close friends of senators typically attend the swearing-in ceremonies. Participants in the ceremony could get tested Tuesday morning in a Senate office building or send results of a medically administered test to a White House email address before 9 a.m. Texas Senator Ted Cruz commented on the rule, tweeting, This is nuts. About the only thing the VP does, especially in a 5149 Senate, is swear in new senators. And with out-of-touch contempt, Kamala is insisting they all get tested before she's willing to do her job. Nope. New and returning senators take the actual oath of office from Harris in small groups, but they now have the opportunity to repeat the ceremony one-on-one -on -one and get a photograph with the vice president, which often includes spouses, children, and grandchildren. In NFL news, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin is in critical condition. He left the field in an ambulance during last night's game against Cincinnati. And today's Andrew Thomas has the latest. An NFL game in Cincinnati came to a halt Monday night when a Bills player collapsed. 24-year-old DeMar Hamlin made what appeared to be a routine tackle at the end of the first quarter. He briefly got to his feet, but then fell over. Medical staff quickly attended to him while both teams took a knee. This is pretty much developing into what we think is commotio cordis. This is a traumatic injury to the anterior chest, and it has to happen at the exact time when the heart is getting prepared to beat again during that repolarization cycle. This is exceedingly rare. However, it's almost like getting struck by lightning. It's that rare. The game was postponed while an ambulance took Hamlin to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Fans from both teams stood outside the hospital, waiting for news. Some held candles. Life's more important than a game, and people are more important than a game, and my, it's just that I hope, I hope he's okay, I hope mom is here, and Buffalo's praying for him, and whatever you believe in, like good, good vibes and positive energy towards them, and like, hopefully he's okay. I mean, yeah, they need to care more about player safety. They say they care, they care about player safety, but they really mean that. Okay. And tonight they, they showed that, they care about it, but it's just like, why does that happen? Why does that happen? So yeah. it's, it's a big thing, but the game should go on. Some players were visibly shaken. Others had tears in their eyes. I think there's a lot of uh, narratives going around, and you know, a lot of people want certain answers, but like, this is a human being who has a family, um, and, and their well-being, his well-being, is, is what's most important. Hamlin remains in critical condition. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The suspect in the University of Idaho student killings arrived at a Pennsylvania courthouse this morning. During the hearing, Brian Koberger is expected to waive his extradition back to Idaho. He's currently being held without bail. CNN reports that two law enforcement sources say investigators traced ownership of a Hyundai Elantra to the suspect. The car had been seen in the area of the killings. Also, the sources said Koberger's DNA matched genetic material recovered at the home where the four students were slain in November. His public defender told NBC his client has a calm demeanor and expects to be exonerated of the charges against him. Southwest Airlines is being sued over its Christmas meltdown. In the lawsuit brought by passenger Eric Capdeville, he accuses the airline of violating federal law. He says instead of providing prompt refunds for canceled flights, Southwest offered credit towards a future flight. A federal judge in Louisiana has been asked to certify the lawsuit as a class action to include other passengers. No comment yet from Southwest. Meanwhile, the U.S. Transportation Department is investigating the airline's, quote, operational meltdown. It forced tens of thousands of flights to be canceled during some of the busiest travel days of the year. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX, is due in federal court in Manhattan today. He's accused of cheating investors out of billions of dollars in a scheme that resulted in FTX's collapse. Bankman-Fried is facing eight criminal counts, including wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. He's expected to plead not guilty. If convicted on all charges, he could face up to 115 years in prison. 
California has become the first sanctuary state in the country to allow children to undergo procedures relating to modifying their gender. SB 107 came into effect on January 1st. The policy allows for providing drugs and gender-related surgery services or so-called gender-affirming care for kids. That includes kids from states where such treatments have been criminalized or restricted. It also prohibits state courts from interfering in child custody battles over these treatments, and it bars compliance with any out-of-state subpoena seeking health information. That means data about people who come to California to receive so-called gender-affirming care. This applies that the subpoena relates to efforts to criminalize individuals or remove children from their homes for receiving such procedures. And in Southern California, a school district has banned critical race theory, or CRT. The vote came in the first meeting of the new board after conservative members were sworn in. The school board called CRT an ideology based on false assumptions about the USA and its population. They also condemned racism and said they desire to uplift and unite students by not imposing the responsibility of historical transgressions from the past. A new study shows the number of children who accidentally ate cannabis edibles in the U.S. jumped well over a thousand percent in recent years. In 2017, there were about 200 reported cases of accidental edible cannabis exposure among kids under age 6. By 2021, there were more than 3,000 cases. The surge in exposure was reported in a study published today in the journal Pediatrics. The first states legalized recreational marijuana in 2012. Since then, availability of edibles has expanded within those states and others. It's currently legal in 21 states. Kids were also home more often during pandemic lockdowns. And coming up, a court rules that wearing a MAGA hat is free speech after a teacher is challenged about wearing one by school staff. We have that and more just after this break. The U.S. National Park Service closed Dry Tortugas National Park off the Florida Keys for several days starting yesterday. This after 300 illegal immigrants arrived on the islands in recent days, overwhelming first responders. The Park Service says the park has recently seen an increase in people arriving by boat from Cuba and landing on the park islands. While most seek overland routes to the United States through Central America and Mexico, others navigate the Caribbean Sea in makeshift vessels. Park personnel had been providing food, water, and basic medical attention until officials from the Department of Homeland Security could take over the relief effort. The Park Service said the closure would last several days. In the meantime, ferry and seaplane services taking tourists to the islands were canceled and all other visitor services were suspended. The U.S. Coast Guard has reported it intercepted over 6,000 Cubans at sea in fiscal year 2022. Meanwhile, Haitian migrants have also been taking to the sea. On Monday, police in the Turks and Caicos Islands reported they had intercepted a vessel with 128 people aboard, all believed to be Haitian nationals. Alabama becomes the latest state to allow residents to carry concealed firearms without a permit. The new state law means a person would not need a permit requiring a background check to carry a concealed handgun in public. However, a gun owner can still get a permit if they choose. The legislation's sponsor says the law only impacts the permit requirement. He says it's not going to change who can and cannot carry a gun and that people who are prohibited will remain so. The law was introduced unsuccessfully for years. As of April 2022, the National Rifle Association stated there are 25 U.S. states that allow concealed carry without a permit. A Pennsylvania police chief fatally shot, another officer wounded. The suspect also killed after a foot chase. Here's what we know. The officers were shot blocks apart in Breckenridge and town northeast of Pittsburgh. The Allegheny County Police Superintendent said the suspect carjacked a vehicle, and when Pittsburgh detectives later spotted it, he fled. The suspect crashed the vehicle after a car chase. He then ran away on foot and fired at the pursuing detectives. They returned fire and killed him Monday evening. Police say the second officer was wounded in the leg and is expected to survive. Authorities identified the suspect as 28-year-old Aaron Lamont Swan. A U.S. appeals court has ruled that a teacher who wore a Make America Great Again hat to school was engaging in constitutionally protected free speech. 
Washington State science teacher Eric Dodge wore the hat during teacher training sessions in 2019. He would take it off before entering buildings, but kept it nearby. Principal Caroline Garrett told Dodge on the first day to use better judgment. On the second day, she allegedly called the teacher a racist and bigot before telling him to bring his union representative the next time they spoke. Dodge filed a lawsuit claiming constitutional violations. In response, Garrett said she was motivated by a desire to prevent disruptions at the school. The appeals court ruled that Principal Garrett's interest in preventing disruption among staff does not outweigh Dodge's right to free speech. Garrett ended up resigning after the school board investigated whether she acted professionally while dealing with Dodge. A potent winter storm that turned deadly in California now threatens other states. It could bring powerful tornadoes to the south and heavy snow, sleet, and freezing rain in the Midwest. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott activated state emergency response resources Monday. Severe weather and flash flooding are expected in parts of his state. In preparation, the National Guard has been put on standby, along with the State Department of Public Safety and the state's Public Utility Commission. Also, a state urban search and rescue team has been placed on standby. The governor is urging Texans to heed the guidance of local officials and remain weather aware. Another major storm system is expected to blow into northern California on Wednesday. That follows strong winds and rains that caused serious damage in Sacramento on New Year's Eve. Footage filmed by Sacramento resident Andrew Hewen shows enormous trees uprooted by the storm blocking roads and crushing houses and cars. The National Weather Service warns the impact of the next storm could be brutal and will likely include flooding, downed trees, power outages, and the likely loss of human life. Residents in the Bay Area were advised to prepare for power outages or road closures that could last several days. A four-year-old girl, a nine-year-old boy, and two adults survived after their car plunged off a northern California cliff. The area along the Pacific Coast Highway is known as Devil's Slide. The area is known for fatal wrecks. The family in the Tesla sedan plummeted more than 250 feet from the highway and crashed into rocks. Authorities say it appears to have flipped a few times before landing on its wheels wedged against the cliff just feet from the surf. Devil's Slide is a steep, rocky, and winding coastal area about 15 miles south of San Francisco. Crashes there rarely end with survivors. The victims were initially listed in critical condition, but all four were conscious and alert when rescuers arrived. Crews set up a rope system from the highway to lower firefighters down the cliff. Expecting to recover bodies, they were glad to carry out a rescue operation instead. The number of new U.S. citizens is way up. According to Pew Research, officials swore in nearly one million immigrants during the last fiscal year. That's the third highest number ever. One of the reasons is because many naturalizations were held up during the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, more people who have lived in the U.S. as legal residents for years are becoming citizens. Some of them say that's because they're worried immigration policies might make it difficult for them to stay if they don't. Right now, there are about 670,000 naturalizations pending. And coming up, we delve into the discrepancies surrounding China's COVID data amid the outbreak and what the real virus death toll is there. And we hear analysis on the Chinese regime's virus control strategy. And nations around the world are mandating COVID-19 tests for travelers from China amid surging infections in the country. We'll have the details soon when we return. Good to have you back with us. A new COVID subvariant virus is spreading. It's rapidly becoming the dominant strain in new COVID infections. XBB 1.5 now accounts for almost 41% of U.S. cases. That's up from 21% on December 24th. In the Northeast U.S., it's even more dominant, making up over 75% of cases. The XBB Omicron variant has taken over from the BQ1 and BQ1.1 strains. An infectious disease expert told Reuters that XBB is the worst variant the world is facing right now. A professor of microbiology and immunology said he expects infections to peak in mid-January, just like the last two years. 
but he says it won't greatly affect death rates. As COVID cases explode in China, countries around the world are ramping up new curbs on travelers arriving from the country. The U.S., U.K., and Australia will require Chinese travelers to submit negative COVID test results before departure starting January 5th. The CDC cautions that Americans should reconsider travel to China, Hong Kong, and Macau. Canada, France, India, and South Korea imposed similar curbs this month. France will also conduct random PCR COVID testing upon arrival of travelers from China. India's testing requirements also cover visitors from Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, and Thailand. Those testing positive will be put under quarantine. In Qatar, this requirement takes effect today. Japan, Italy, Spain, Malaysia, and Taiwan are testing travelers from China upon arrival. In Japan, those testing positive will be quarantined for one week. Malaysia will also screen wastewater from aircraft arriving from China for COVID-19. Belgium is also testing wastewater from planes coming from China. Morocco will ban entry of all travelers from China, regardless of nationality, starting today. And today, the European Union is holding a crisis response meeting to determine whether entry curbs should be imposed across the 27-nation bloc. COVID cases in China are rising, but how many are infected? Funeral homes are reportedly working overtime. Entity's Ali Hart reports. Just how many in China have been infected with COVID-19? Right now, there's no official tally, but some Chinese experts are putting together their own estimates and projections. China's top health body has stopped updating daily infections. Authorities also no longer mass test the public. Two Chinese experts put the infection rate in Beijing at around 80%. One of them is a former top scientist at China's CDC. The other is a member of China's highest-ranking consulting institution in science called CAS. Outside Beijing, infection rates in many big cities have hit 50% and are estimated to jump even higher. That's according to infectious disease specialist Zhang Wenhong. Based on these estimates, an article that's widely circulating inside China is putting the nationwide infection rate at 40 percent. It estimates almost 600 million people in China have been infected with the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. This is in line with NTD's research. With COVID-19 cases rising in China, funeral homes have been busy. Reports from across China show funeral homes have boosted their working hours, some of them now running seven days a week. In eastern China's Jiangsu province, video shows a group of people carrying a coffin to a funeral home at night. And as early as 8 a.m. on the first day of the new year, crowds gathered at this funeral home, waiting for services for their loved ones. A factory owner in northern China's Hebei province shared other details on Chinese social media. He reported that body bags and other funeral-related products were sold out locally, writing that the funeral homes that used to order one or two hundred body bags are now ordering 2,000, and that one funeral home from Wuhan, which used to order three or five hundred body bags, just called to place an order for 20,000. He added that urns and wreaths are also sold out, and that orders for them will be delayed for several days. Likewise, he said coffins are running out. A photo circulating on Twitter captures bags of human remains lined up on the ground. A nearby sign instructs people to carefully check labels as they collect their loved ones' ashes. The funeral home didn't give an explanation for why the remains weren't stored in urns. Next, more reports about what's happening in Chinese hospitals, this time from communications between a hospital staff member and his family. In voice messages sent to his relatives, the medical worker explained many patients receiving treatment at his hospital are those reinfected with COVID-19, meaning those who previously recovered from the virus and got sickened a second time. The voice messages were uploaded to social media. Let me tell you that the secondary infection is really serious. Now, in my hospital, many of the hospitalized patients, the patients are secondarily infected people. None of the TV stations are reporting on this. He went on to say the immune systems of the reinfected patients don't work as well. He further advised his family to wear masks, even after recovering from the first infection with COVID-19. 
Next, we get some analysis of China's COVID chaos. We hear from a medical expert who breaks down some of the reasons for the discrepancies in the case rate, insight into the real death toll, and Beijing's strategy to control the outbreak. Joining us now for analysis is Dr. Sean Lin, former U.S. Army microbiologist and professor of biomedical sciences at Feitian College. He's also a member of the Committee of Present Danger China. Great to have you on the show, Dr. Lin. Thank you for reminding me. Chinese state media is downplaying the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak in the country. It's trying to assure the public that the situation is under control. Can you give us some insight into the true scale of the infections in China right now? I think right now there are two systems actually uh, governing the uh, Chinese um, political system actually, uh, because the current premier Li Keqiang has not stepped down, uh, but the newly elected uh, the uh, Politburo member Li Chang, he's actually taking the lead of controlling the uh, pandemic situation in China, and so it's weird. And uh, Li Keqiang, the, the current premier, is actually more down to the earth. So. So you sometimes you see some uh, data has come out of the system, like for example, China's top experts on uh, pandemic controls, uh, Zheng Guan, as you mentioned, in Beijing alone, he, es- he estimated 18 million people already got infected. But for Li Chang, the other system, they want to cover up the true information about the infection, about the hospitalization and uh, people in ICU as well as the death toll. Thanks for explaining the discrepancy between some of the numbers that we're seeing. Now, since the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak, the Chinese regime has been criticized for underreporting its death toll due to the virus. China's official total number of lives lost stands at just over 5,200. To put that in perspective, that's over 200 times less than the U.S., which saw over a million deaths. What can you tell us about the real death rate in China right now? Uh, It's totally... uh a number that no one can believe right now. Because even in Beijing alone, uh, many of the uh, crematories can have about 400 deaths per day. And so in Beijing alone, it can be 5,000 people uh, died in one day alone. So the uh, the government data is actually a joke. Uh, So I think uh, the reality is uh, much worse than the world have been seeing through Chinese government's data. And I think actually in the January or even in February, we still will see a very high peak of the death toll coming out of China, the real number. That is really sad that it's that high, or according to what you're saying. China has abruptly loosened virus restrictions that were in place for much of the pandemic. In light of this, what is the CCP doing to handle this infection peak? So basically, CCP adopting a total uh, different strategy compared to zero COVID policy. They actually encourage people to get infected. So actually nowadays you see in China, they uh, allow many places to host, to host huge events uh, for New Year celebrations. And uh, you, you see tens of thousands of people gathering together for celebrating the New Year's. Uh, so they actually encourage people to get infected. It's so-called to get uh, herd immunity as soon as possible. It's interesting that they would try to go for herd immunity now at this stage, is it not? You basically push many people to get severely uh, infected and many people will end up in ICU or died. And the, and the government did this at a time when the, uh, China is in a very, very poor shortage of the uh, even antiparabic uh, medicines. And so many people will die because they cannot access to medical treatments. And so this is very, very uh, a huge disaster. It's very good to have an update from you. Dr. Sean Lin, former U.S. Army microbiologist and professor of biomedical sciences at Feitian College, thank you so much for your analysis today. Thank you. Coming up, a Ukrainian attack on New Year's Eve killed a large number of Russian soldiers. It's one of the deadliest strikes yet in the war. The latest on the European Union-Qatar corruption scandal, the European Parliament is waiving the immunity of two of its members. That and more here on NTD News Today. Russia said on Monday that scores of its troops were killed in a strike by Ukraine. They were allegedly housed near an ammunition dump. Here's more. Eyewitness video purports to show the smoldering remains of a building that housed Russian recruits in Ukraine's occupied Donetsk province. 
On Monday, Russia acknowledged that scores of its troops were killed in one of the Ukraine war's deadliest strikes. Rockets reportedly hit the recruits in Makivka just after midnight on New Year's Eve. The strike prompted Russian nationalist bloggers to call for commanders to be punished for housing soldiers alongside an ammunition dump. Russia's defense ministry said 63 service personnel were killed. Ukraine's defense ministry had said as many as 400 had died. The air war intensified over the New Year holiday, with Moscow launching an unprecedented third straight night of strikes on January the 2nd. Ukraine said it had shot down all Russian drones in the wave of attacks which targeted cities including Kyiv, hundreds of miles from the front lines. It marks a change in Russian tactics after months in which Moscow usually spaced out such strikes. Russia has turned to airstrikes since suffering humiliating defeats on the battlefield in the second half of last year. Ukraine says the attacks have no military purpose and are intended to hurt civilians. In recent weeks, the front lines have been largely static, with thousands of soldiers dying in intense warfare. In 2023, political and military tensions will remain high on parts of the globe. Let's take a look at three geopolitical battlegrounds where major conflicts are taking place or are likely to take place. The war between Russia and Ukraine will enter its second year in 2023. The leaders of both countries addressed the war in their New Year's speeches. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on December 31st that he wishes for victory in 2023. I wish one thing to all of us now, victory, and this is the main thing. One wish for all Ukrainians, let this year be the year of return, the return of our people, warriors, their families, captives to their homes, internally displaced persons to their Ukraine, return of our lands. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin used his own New Year's address to rally the Russian people behind troops fighting in Ukraine. This has been a year of difficult, necessary decisions of crucial steps towards Russia's full sovereignty and the powerful consolidation of our society. It was a year that cleared up many things. It clearly separated courage and heroism from betrayal and cowardice. Putin also promised a Russian victory in the war. Now, turning our attention to Asia, there are two geopolitical battlegrounds in the region with rising tensions. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called for developing new intercontinental ballistic missiles and a larger nuclear arsenal in the new year. That's according to North Korea's state TV. The current situation highlights the importance and necessity of mass production of tactical nuclear weapons and calls for an exponential increase of the country's nuclear arsenal. North Korea launched three short-range ballistic missiles on December 31st, and in the early hours of New Year's Day, the regime also fired another ballistic missile that fell into the Sea of Japan. The Japanese government filed a diplomatic protest. In the last year, North Korea's repeated missile launches have gravely raised tensions on the Korean Peninsula and regionally. North Korea's series of provocations threatens the peace and security of Japan, the region and the international community and must not be tolerated. Over the course of 2022, North Korea conducted an unprecedented number of missile tests. The president of South Korea said on Monday that his country is discussing possible nuclear exercises with the U.S. And remaining in Asia, the Taiwan Strait is also a geopolitical battleground brewing with tension. In her annual New Year's speech, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen called for communication and cooperation with the Chinese regime. From the COVID epidemic to the changes in global political and economic, two straits are experiencing the same challenges, and war is never an option to resolve problems. Only through communication and cooperation, with the goal of improving regional stability, will more people feel safe and happy. In his New Year's speech, Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping made only a brief reference to Taiwan and mainly addressed the COVID-19 pandemic. He said China overcame unprecedented difficulties and challenges during the pandemic in 2022. This is while the country deals with a major surge in virus cases. Tsai reacted to Xi's speech, saying Taiwan is willing to give humanitarian aid to China. 
The European Parliament is waiving the immunity of two of its members. It's at the request of a Belgian judiciary investigating the Qatar corruption scandal. The two MEPs are Belgian Mark Tarabella and Italian Andrea Cozzolino. In December, one of the main suspects in the investigation, Francesco Giorgi, confessed to taking bribes from Qatar to influence European Parliament decisions on Qatar. Giorgi, an EU parliamentary assistant, said he suspected Tarabella and Cozzolino had also received money from Qatar. The corruption scandal with Qatar is one of the biggest graft corruption scandals to hit the EU. Croatia is one of Europe's most idyllic summer destinations, and with its own currency, the kuna, it has always felt a little more exotic than other European destinations. But that all changed on January 1st when Croatia joined the Eurozone, replacing its historic kuna with the euro. It's the 20th country to join the single currency. The European Commission says euro banknotes and coins are now circulating in the country, with around 70% of ATMs already distributing euros. And as well as changing its currency, Croatia also joined the Schengen area. That's a block of 26 countries that has done away with border checks within Europe. Croatia's prime minister described the move as a historic day for Croatia. Finns are stocking up on firewood and refitting their homes to cut power consumption this winter. They'll have to live with soaring energy bills or no electricity at all after Russia cut gas supplies since last May. And today's Andrew Thomas has more. Russia terminated Finland's power and gas supplies in May, a few months after invading Ukraine. The relationship between Russia and Finland has remained tense. Moscow has repeatedly warned Helsinki against joining NATO. But in July, NATO's 30 allies agreed to steps for Finland and Sweden to join. This is a good day for Finland and Sweden and a good day for NATO. With 32 nations around the table, we will be even stronger and our people will be even safer as we face the biggest security crisis in decades. Now, each parliament has to ratify the decision. It would be NATO's most significant expansion since the 1990s. Since the summer, Finns have gathered flashlights, heating units and firewood. Regional electricity grid companies, smaller regions at a time, circulate electricity blackouts, and the idea, of course, is that it would be possible to warn the citizens beforehand. Though that is not always possible, but that is the idea, and an individual customer would be an hour or two without electricity. Two residents outside of Helsinki are worried. Heating their 100-year-old cottage isn't easy. Curtains help prevent heat from escaping. They also have two pipes that blow warm air from the fireplace to other parts of the home. Burning wood in the fireplace, stoves and the hearth. That is how we have heated the place so far. At least we heat it without radiators, before the temperature drops way below zero. Then we might have to turn on the radiators. Finland, along with other Western nations, set a $60 per barrel price cap on Russian seaborne crude oil. The policy came into effect December 5th for the group of seven major powers, the European Union and Australia. On December 27th, Russian President Vladimir Putin delivered Russia's response. Moscow plans to ban oil supplies to those nations for five months, starting in February. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Three prominent opponents of Tunisia's president say they are under investigation. One of them has organized regular protests against President Kais Saeed for several months. Days earlier, Saeed threatened judicial action against those he called defamers of national symbols, considering it a threat to national security. Saeed came to power in July 2021 and dissolved parliament after that, a step his opponents described as a coup. They accused Saeed of dictatorship and one-man rule. Tunisia's National Trade Union also denounced the president, opposing his alleged authoritarian practices. One of the three investigated activists said he wouldn't respond to any lawsuit, calling the case politically motivated. And just ahead at the French-Swiss border, fishermen meet every weekend during spawning season to breed trout. They're attempting to repopulate the rivers with the species. And Australia tests a new way to generate electricity. Environmentalists hope so-called green hydrogen could be the future of energy. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Welcome back. At the French-Swiss border, fishermen are noticing a decrease in trout populations. To restore their numbers, the fishermen meet every weekend during spawning season to breed them. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. These fishermen are hoping to catch trout in this pond near the Rhone River. But the scarcity of fish could be a problem. I've been fishing in this area for 32 years. Before, we used to have a lot of trout in our rivers because there wasn't the dam in Switzerland that drains its water every two years, and the big trout used to swim upstream to spawn in the streams. For trout to reproduce successfully, they must find calm waters. From November to January, they travel from main rivers to smaller streams further up. There they can find the right conditions for spawning. In this fish farm located next to the Swiss border, an organization is attempting to repopulate the rivers with trout. This year, we have spawned approximately 150,000 eggs that will be redistributed in the streams as unfed alevins, and this is very important. Then we will release bigger alevins of 5 to 7 centimeters in areas we choose where they will be most protected. Alevins are newly spawned fish that have broken the outer layer of the eggshell. To breed the fish, they mix eggs from the females and milk from the males in basins of water. We don't squeeze them hard, just a little bit of pressure, and if they are ready, they release the eggs and they come out easily. They carefully choose native fish to include. We will mix the milt of the males that we selected according to their color and to the breed that we are looking for, the local brown trout of our rivers. Then we will assemble the good-looking females that we have chosen with the good-looking males in order to make a selection that resembles as much as possible the local strain that we have. The eggs are then transferred into an incubation room for the next few months. The association is working once a week throughout the spawning season. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Nearly four out of five new cars sold in Norway in 2022 were battery-powered. However, some in the industry are voicing concerns about whether sales will keep up after the end of some generous subsidies. Sales of electric vehicles in Norway accounted for nearly four out of five new cars sold in the country last year. That's according to registration data, which showed that Norway, with its 5.5 million inhabitants, achieved the world's highest proportion of electric vehicles, making it a proving ground for automakers launching EV models. The sales were led by Elon Musk's Tesla, which sold more cars in Norway than any other brand for a second consecutive year. But some in the auto industry say new taxes in Norway could thwart the country's goal of becoming the first to end sales of fossil fuel vehicles by 2025. Norway has until now exempt battery electric vehicles from taxes imposed on those with internal combustion engines. But while the subsidies helped cut emissions, the finance ministry said they cost the state about $4 billion in lost revenue in 2022. The government is now seeking to curb benefits for high-end vehicles and bring in a new auto tax based on weight. Thor Eagle Bradland said that concerned him. Because the government is now starting to increase the taxes on EV and we are afraid that it will reduce the sales on EVs. The government has defended its electric vehicle policy with Johan Vasara, a state secretary at the Norwegian Transport Ministry, saying that because electric vehicles have become the new normal car for Norwegians, quote, that means we have to look into how we are using society's funds. Environmentalists are trying to find a reliable way to generate electricity without fossil fuels. In Western Australia, a test is underway to see if so-called green hydrogen is the way to go. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the trials. The coastal town of Denham is nine hours north of Perth, Australia. Here, there's plenty of sunlight and wind. But local resident Joel Fumlonga has a love-hate relationship with the weather. When the weather's nice, it's full of people. And when it's windy, they all go. Denham has been chosen as the site for an innovative renewable energy project. Fumlonga is happy about it. Well, it's something you don't think a lot about, but it's good that they're trying this sort of thing in a small town like this anyway. The trial will cost about $5.4 million. State-owned power provider Horizon plans to use electricity generated by a solar farm to produce hydrogen. That hydrogen will then be used in a fuel cell. 
it will satisfy about a quarter of Denham's electricity needs and reduce the use of fossil fuels. 100% firm renewable is the holy grail of electricity. This is what everybody's trying to achieve right around the world. We are importing into this state 6.7 billion litres of diesel each year. And you just think of that from the carbon footprint, the, uh, our supply chain uh, vulnerability. The West Coast trial could provide a glimpse into Australia's energy future. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, a new smart ball provides rugby players and fans with more data than ever before. The ball can track stats for players and teams. In the UK, a new type of yoga is combining traditional poses with the fun of playing with puppies. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. A new smart ball is giving rugby players and fans more data than ever before, live and in real time during a match. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on its capabilities. Sports data firm Sportable and sports equipment company Gilbert have made a smart rugby ball. It communicates with wireless beacons around the field. The ball can reveal player and team stats like kick distance, pass distance and territory gained. You know, as a player, I was constantly looking for various ways of understanding myself better, understanding the environment that I was involved in a bit better, uh, and that I was able to make much better decisions much quicker. And I think through insights, through data. Habana is an ambassador for Sage, the business software company that is an insight partner on the SmartBall project. The GPS transmitters track the ball 20 times a second. It can produce live graphics of exactly what is happening on the field. It has a microchip inside that allows incredible insights and data to be relayed in real time, not only to audiences around the world, but to coaches, to teams, to players, and it gives some valuable insights into everything that is happening on the rugby field in real time. Players, coaching staff, and commentators are all able to take advantage of the data. The technology could also help end disputes. It can potentially help referees decide whether a ball was passed backwards or was it passed forwards. Did the momentum of the acceleration of the player mean that the ball traveled forward but was passed backwards? Um, you know, how quickly rucks develop, you know, how high a scrum off, for instance, kicks a ball. The microchip weighs around 0.3 ounces and doesn't affect the performance of the ball. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A new type of yoga is sweeping across the UK. What's unique about it? The poses must be executed with puppies around. Puppy yoga aims to combine the spiritual and physical benefits of yoga with the mental boost of playing with adorable puppies. Each session lasts 75 minutes. There's some time to get to know the puppies before the course begins. Typically, the canines just play around or sleep through the whole session. But participants say their goal is never the yoga poses themselves. One yoga instructor explains the appeal. It's hard to focus because obviously they're adorable, so you can't not look at them. But also the little nibbles that they give you or maybe they're climbing on you is sometimes a bit of a practice, but it's a beautiful practice to be self-aware more than anything. Um, but overall, it's really fun in games more than anything. It just made me feel like all warm and, yeah, they're just so cute. Yeah, and I just feel really energized now. Puppy yoga started in Liverpool in April, but has quickly spread to Manchester, Leeds, and Birmingham. The levels are geared towards beginners, so everyone can join in the fun. And it's not just good for the human participants. The program also works with local dog owners or breeders to build a store window for dogs looking for new homes. The animals may also meet their potential owners directly during the sessions. An Atlanta-area real estate agent, who is not a professional golfer, was recently invited to play golf's most prestigious event, the Masters. Scott Stallings says he received a package from Augusta National Golf Club with an invite for this April. He quickly realized it was a case of mistaken identity. The package was intended for a different Scott Stallings, who is in fact a pro golfer. The realtor reached out to the golfer via Instagram to let him know about the oversight, much to the relief of Stallings, who was eagerly awaiting his first master's invitation since 2014. Okay, Scott, 
Why are we at the UPS store? Because I'm having to send my invitation to play at the Masters back to the other Scott Stallings. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I tried. I'm sorry. That's okay. To save the day, the realtor took the invitation to a local shipping store and mailed it to the three-time PGA Tour winner. Keeping your hormones in balance is important for both men and women. Let's look at some natural ways to balance them. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Your hormones can take you for a ride. Men often worry about low testosterone contributing to fatigue. Much of the focus for women is surrounding reduced estrogen, but these only represent a couple of hormones. They can certainly influence your body and how you feel in big ways. But there are other hormones you can naturally balance. This can help you to combat the symptoms associated with aging. Muscle loss and fat gain are two issues many aging people struggle with, but it's not all about testosterone or estrogen. One hormone you can focus on to build muscle strength and slow fat gain is DHEA. When you were younger, your body was producing DHEA at much higher levels. It helped you build muscle and stay slimmer. But with age, production drops in strength and metabolism can too. Boosting protein intake by supplementing with whey protein can enhance DHEA production. This can help to slow muscle loss and fat gain. About four tablespoons per day have been shown to help. Another hormone that drops with age is serotonin. After about 45, it starts slipping downward. This can result in mood fluctuations and poor sleep. If you want to boost serotonin, include these foods in your diet. Potatoes, eggs, cheese, salmon, nuts, and turkey. Hormones can also play a role in skin health. IGF-1 is produced in the liver and plays several roles in your body. One is skin aging. There is research indicating that two-minute bursts of exercise like walking can boost IGF. It can also contribute to younger-looking skin. By making a few lifestyle changes, you may be able to balance your hormones to slow the aging process. Using diet and activity can help you to offset naturally reduced hormones. It can also help you to feel younger, more energized, and have anti-aging effects. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.